Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with my brother, Dr. Henry Fraser, and we talked about his podcast, The Man Mum Podcast, and we ended up talking about freedom of speech. This is the first of two parts, so this is a crossover episode with Henry's Man Mum Podcast, uh, where the first half of the conversation is tea with Alice, the second half of the conversation, if you head over to his feed, uh, Henry Fraser, Man Mum, on all of your podcatching things, that is there. Uh, I really enjoyed having this conversation with Henry, particularly, it's funny because we, I feel a little bit guilty, we did the tea with Alice while Lucy was having her nap, and then we did the Man Mum podcast when Lucy woke up, so that descended a little bit into chaos, uh, which wasn't necessarily great for the um, nuanced conversation that we were having. Uh, I know that Hen felt a little bit uncomfortable with some of the things that he said, but bear in mind that he was doing it with divided attention because at the same time as he was making quite complicated points, he was uh, balancing a baby's uh, needs. And so I hope you enjoy listening to that. I enjoyed it because it was moderately chaotic and uh, beautiful to watch somebody talk about, you know, children's books propaganda while also doing the incredibly hard work of parenting. Um, so I think this conversation is fun. I will get on with letting you listen to it. But first, I'll do a quick plug. If you don't want to hear the plug, it'll be a minute and a half, two minutes, skip ahead, and you'll you'll miss it. But the plug is for my new show, Kronos, which will be in Melbourne, Sydney, and Perth. Tickets are available online if you Google Alice Fraser Kronos, C-H-R-O-N-O-S. I'm also doing a daily podcast, a daily satirical news podcast set in an alternate dimension that's called The Last Post. So look that up if you're interested in that. And we have a release date for Savage on Amazon Prime, which will be the 19th of April. So uh, if you have time, uh, put, a, put a reminder in your diary. I'll probably plug it a million times before then. Um, I will let you get on with listening to the podcast now. Email me at alicerfraser at gmail.com if you want to have a chat or tweet me at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R. A-T-I-V-E Alliterative A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E I'm going to go play with my adorable niece Okay, you're having tea with Alice (laughs) Hi and welcome to the podcast You're having tea with Alice This week's episode is with Henry Fraser Welcome back to the podcast Who are you and what are you drinking? Thank you very much. I'm your brother. I'm a full-time stay-at-home father, a former lawyer, was probably current lawyer, uh, a a new, a fresh podcaster or attempting podcasts. Um, a would-be author <laughs> who never writes anything for want of energy or time. Yeah. Uh, a homemaker, I suppose. And I'm drinking rooibos with milk, which is my preferred tea. And I do what, like. I do. I'm partial to a lapsang with milk as well. A lapsang with milk and uh, a rooibos with milk. Do you have any like particular milk preferences? Are you one of these modern types of people who uses milk alternatives, or are you a milk milk man? I feel that there are good ethical arguments for milk alternatives, and I do try uh, to to opt for milk alternatives some of the time, and I usually have them in the cupboard as well. Um, so that, for example, if I run out of milk, then instead of going out to consume more milk and putting more pressure on the dairy economy, I'll then have, like, until I exhaust my supply of whatever it is, oat milk or almond milk, or whatever, I'll try and do that. 
oat milk, the thinnest of porridges. Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, um, so you're doing these two podcasts or two podcasts in one situation, uh, the Man Mum podcast. Uh, yes, it's the Man, the Man Mum pop. The Man, I always say that as well in my podcast. I'm like, the Man Mum podcast. Um, <laughs> and my favourite was get... when it was just on YouTube and I think, I think your second or third was you, you wrote it out because obviously you're a sleep-deprived full-time parent. You wrote it as Man Mun. Man Mun, yeah. <laughs> on the um, little... Um, on the little tag under the YouTube. Yeah, I just... stopped doing that because it's too time-consuming and it was not consistent with the ethos of the podcast, which is one draft and out. Well, that's the great thing, I think, about podcasting and, you know, it sort of parallels some of the good things about comedy, which is that you learn by iterating. Um, so you just do it. Yes. It's better to just get it done than it is to perfect it. And, of course, there are, like, really good um, arguments, like Helen Zaltzman is an absolute podcast perfectionist and all of her things that she turns out are of very high quality and very produced and very, like, edited and she does these incredible pieces of work but I think there is also room for the this kind of thing like for me Tea with Alice is all about what a conversation looks like and particularly what a conversation about difficult things looks like as a kind of a like not to big up the impact that I have but as a kind of a model of how you can talk about these things because I don't think there is enough of that in the world you know you have interview podcasts but that's a different thing. I think there are I mean long form Long-form conversation podcasts are the new uh, uh, expressive form of the 21st century. I feel like, you know, in as the novel was the, 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 the innovative form of the 19th century or late 18th or 18th and 19th centuries. And the podcast is the, the, where a lot of creative energy and also where there's a lot of demand, where there's an interest, it's the form of expression that seems to have captured people's imaginations and have a lot of cultural sway and to be responsible probably for the largest volume of intellectual activity in listeners as well as podcasters and it's and people are rushing to the format now. Yeah, uh, certainly so all of the big a, companies are now yeah. investing. But you have these podcast superstars, the the quintessential examples being uh, Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan. I think what they have in common uh, and arguably what they have in common with me, although I think we don't necessarily cross over a lot, but it is a sort of an idealism about what conversation can do. And the, Certainly Joe Rogan. That, that you yeah. see the appeal of Joe Rogan, whether or not you agree with his politics or his stance, and I certainly have a limited tolerance for listening to his podcasts. I can listen to a few in a row and then I start to feel like this odd feeling like if I was in the room he'd ignore me. <laughs> I don't think that's fair, but, I mean, that's how you feel, isn't it? Well, so I mean, maybe it's just... You can't deny how he makes you feel, but... Maybe it's just too many backstage conversations where I've been ignored by... Guy Bantz. Yeah. And um, yeah. he is obviously very much in himself this kind of masculinist guy and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, that he is providing a model of masculinity which is quite open to new ideas and engaged with uh, ideas. Which is unashamedly... Well, I think what I like about Joe Rogan in terms of what he stands for, as an ex, you know, as an exemplar, which he is for so many people, I think he gets a crazy number Like 60 of million downloads per episode, something mm -hmm. outrageous. So huge, you know, like three... Three Australia's worth of people, um, or one United Kingdom worth of people, is to some extent shaping their 
their sense of identity and their opinions based on his affect and his personality because it's very much his personality this kind of freewheeling guy but what i like about joe rogan is that he stands for a masculinity that's unashamedly physical that is not ashamed of aggression provided that it's channeled you know he's a commentator for mixed martial arts ufc and he's a former much successful very successful martial artist and he has lots of videos of him working out very aggressively and like smashing the weights and all that stuff but he's also unashamedly intellectual so you know the idea that you can be very manly and a tough guy and also actually be interested in ideas and in well that he's coming from that he's interested in ideas but in this appealingly uh stupid way not that he's a stupid guy, but that his um, self-presentation is of an open-minded dude who's willing to be told. And yeah. so you see in his process things like, you know, he came in not believing in the moon landing and then he spoke to a scientist who explained it and he was like, oh, yeah, I'm an idiot. <laughs> but that willingness to go, oh, yeah, I'm an idiot is so rare I think it's, yeah, it's in rare. public discourse nowadays yeah. um, that, it's, that it's an appealing trait. Also, I think there is absolutely a crisis of masculinity that is happening certainly in the western world certainly in a world where men have rendered themselves uh historically speaking redundant (laughs) by the invention of electricity um and and so you know if your job is not to be physical how do you engage that part of yourself that feels really viscerally that that's an important thing to be and you i think you know without getting like gender essentialist about it and by without getting gender essentialist about it, I mean I'm absolutely about to become gender essentialist. Um, I think it's good for men and for women. I think it's good for everyone to do something physical uh, within the capacity of your body. For men, I think it's important to know what you're capable of because otherwise you have these aggressive urges that are paired with a very real uncertainty about how you would perform in a conflict situation. So you see the aggression being channeled online or whatever it happens to be, you're playing lots of violent video games and expressing your aggression in that way, but you kind of have some underlying sense that you wouldn't be great in a fight. Not that we should be measuring our qualities as how they apply to a fight, but I do think there's something probably biological, maybe socialised in men that makes that really important to know how you'd be in a fight. And you, one of the characteristics of people who are military, you know, trained in, in martial arts and things is that they are conflict averse as a general rule in everyday life, that they tend to be a little bit less fighty and a little bit calmer. So it feels like maybe correlation isn't causation, but it certainly feels like there's some causation there. I mean, you, you're sort of hitting on Joe Rogan 101. He has these conversations with a number of interesting people. One was that journalist. Uh, I mean, here, we're, here we are promoting a, a podcast that needs no promotion because it's probably one of the most successful in the world. But he ha- it's interesting. He has one conversation with Andy. Well, I mean, I'm using it as a reference point no, because it is so popular. Yeah. Well, yeah, but he has precisely these kinds of conversations. One is with Firas Sahabi, who's a very successful mixed martial arts coach arguably his one of his athletes is the greatest of all time George St. Pierre and he talked about exactly about that about how people don't understand violence and how how why training in martial arts or training in jiu-jitsu or whatever is gives affords people a certain confidence and also reality check so that they don't feel the need to you know express their road rage or that they have less to prove and they also know what actual violence is and are far far less keen 
because then you you know how how often you lose even against people who are worse than you or get yourself in a bad situation training um, and how even a very great amount of skill won't necessarily preserve you or will be very ugly if used in reality even if you're trying to be gentle so on and so forth but he also had this conversation with um i think the journalist's name is andy ngo uh andy no i don't know how you pronounce it I'm yeah, a man who uh, yeah, and who who was covering the Antifa demonstrations in Portland, Oregon, in the states, and, and is either a shitstirrer and you know deliberate sort of fascist sympathizer, or he's a bastion of the attempt for, towards free speech, who is being unnecessarily and probably racistly victimized by Antifa. Or possibly a little bit of both. Well, I think that you're allowed to be a shitstirrer if you're a reporter. That's your job. And not all reporters have to be sympathetic with the causes that they're covering. And in fact, you probably get more if they're not, regardless of whether they're right or wrong. Um, and he, anyway, you need to point out, even if a movement is broadly something we might sympathise with, there is great value in pointing out all of its flaws because then that's how you improve things. That's the point of journalism. Anyway, this guy found himself um, severely uh, beaten by uh, purported anti-far, anti-fascists for... Uh, not sharing their views and for criticizing them, which would seem to be the quintessence of actual fascism. But and, well, and and he was sort of saying, well, these people, you know, don't understand violence because they don't really understand how much harm they could have done to this person. I think they were sort of trying to humiliate him. But, but they ended fact, up giving really him brain hurt, damage. Yeah, that's right, or well, causing him some kind of bleed on the brain, or so he claims. And also they're lucky so far that they haven't encountered a real psycho. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is the, I mean, they, they have encountered a real psycho. There was that man who ran over some anti-fascists mm. in his car. I, I think this is an interesting area of discourse because you have this old, very, very inherent to the, like, Western tradition, uh, particularly the British legal tradition, of f- furthering the discourse through adversarial conversation. Yes. Or the the dialectic process where you have a pro and a con and you go back and forth and ideally you moderate one another's ideas and that is a forward motion. Of course, that can be perverted or distorted in the way that you see uh, news sources doing that now of trying to provide balance and instead providing one side that is clearly sane and the other side that is clearly not attached to reality, whether it's, you know, the fact that, climate denialists are given airings on, you know, equal airing 50-50 with somebody who has 96% of the scientific consensus behind them. 99 point something percent of the scientific consensus behind them. Uh, So that is a sort of a false perversion of the dialectic process. But at the same time, uh, you know, I've been called out for this. I did a joke in a show that I had where I talked about feeling deeply uncomfortable with violence against... Uh, nationalist groups who were peacefully protesting because although I feel like repulsed by you know very very sort of jingoistic nationalistic impulses as somebody who has like Jewish heritage that feels dangerous and unpleasant to me I don't quite buy into the idea that having those ideas is violence that expressing those ideas is equivalent to violence and therefore justifies violence in opposition to it. I think it justifies strong opposition 
and Condem- condemnation and, and condemnation and as much as the ideology in its expression is violent or repugnant, it justifies an equal measure of force, of rhetorical force, of of verbal force, but it doesn't justify, you know, once you get into the physical realm, then you're entering into a different domain. Well, that's the thing. I think physicality is such a different, a different thing, which is not to say... Like, there are words and language that you can use that is more damaging long-term to someone's psyche than being punched in the face. But it's a different thing. So when I talk to people who are my friends who've been in abusive relationships or whatever, often it's the language that was used or the words that were used or the, the kind of psychological damage that, that has long-term impacts in a way that violence didn't. Uh, the violence was sort of unpleasant in a different way. But equally, the two things are not equivalent. They're on different spectrums and different frameworks. And we have, I think we need to maintain a distinction between them. I think there's the illusion because we live so much of our lives online that words are action. Well, I, can't, I must say I don't understand that line of argument at all and I've, I haven't really spent much time investigating it because it seems so very silly. But I I do think the reason why we can regulate physical action in a way that it's risky, I mean, there are a number of reasons that it's risky to regulate, over-regulate speech. One is, of course, the the fundamental liberal value that we ascribe to conversation because it's the only way that we, it's the best way we have so far, imperfect though it is, for making progress and, and bringing to light things that aren't working and emphasizing things that are working in order to, as a society, improve our lives and improve our lot. But, and, and by regulating speech, you risk that, which in the long run risks a very great amount of harm indeed. Yes. You know, to people or at least preventing a very great amount of well-being that might be realized. So the in ca- terms of, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. I, I agree with you and I have agreed with you. I'm sort of slightly disrupted in my... You know, I historically was a little bit more of a free speech fundamentalist and now I'm, uh, I don't know where I sit on it. I'm interested in it. The The premise or the argument is that um, I think it's, it's a messy way of thinking. A lot of people are thinking about this in very unfinished ways, but I think there are a couple of things that are that are kind of fundamental to it. First of all, that the tradition of discourse has been in a kind of an airy academic forum. And that's a thing that appeals to me. Like, I like talking about things in an academic way. But when you're talking about things in an academic way, you are ignoring the real impact they have on people's lives. And in addition, those spaces for having that kind of thoughtful conversation have been exclusionary in the past. So people who have been... They assume... A bourgeois context, the public sphere, the Kantian idea of a public sphere assumes a, an educated bourgeoisie with enough privilege and time and education and sort of shared shared mores to make progress. Um, and 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 also that you're uh, talking about public that that you're talking about things um, that don't necessarily affect you directly, that aren't life or death matters. Yeah. And there's an urgency and a and a fear that that creeps into this discussion where people are talking or they feel or they really are genuinely like affected on a day-to-day life to death 
way by these conversations, whether you're arguing about, you know, when, when it comes to Nazism, you're arguing about certain people's value, like their life value in, in, a, in a very real sense. So if you yeah, say but by that... by the same token, when you're talking, you know, when you're arguing about... When you're arguing about anything, um, just to bookmark this because I want to go back to another point, but just when you're arguing about any any course of action has economic and social consequences, which ultimately are capable of... They can be cashed in. They're fungible in terms of human life. Yes. You know, like a certain... Any, any course of action which affects society in such a way as to create wealth or reduce wealth, to create opportunity or reduce opportunity, to create, create rights or limit rights, create rights or limit rights or um, create convenience or limit convenience, you know, public transport decisions uh, affect traffic, which affects how quickly the ambulance gets to the hospital, which affects how many people die. Like everything is life and death. Ultimately, every decision and everything that you're conversing about at some degree of remove is life and death. Yes, um, but, but people aren't good at tracking. Or not those everything, things. but I am. I, I'm trying. I can't really imagine. I'm. I'm rather tired, and so I can't think of the, the examples that don't fit that. But what I mean to say is, a lot of conversations that don't appear on their face to be about life and death are about life and death. And so, if you start to say, okay, well, you're 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 proposing to reduce funding to public transport, and therefore it's violence because someone might die as a result of the traffic. Yeah. And congestion externalities, and also someone might, you know, someone might then get to work late, have their pay docked, which might result in, some, you know, being just their, the difference I mean, if it's between in America, yeah, losing, losing their job, their job losing or their just health not insurance, having quite enough to send the child to university. Like, you know, if you if you actually think systematically and rationally about the consequences of any kind of decision that is made on the basis of deliberation and conversation, it's it's very often life and death at some point. Yes, um, I agree. I think which is what this is. This is this is this is why conservatives care so much about economic growth. If you don't understand why they get so annoyed about things that that disrupt economic growth, that is why they care. I think. Yeah, because I mean that's a <laughs> giving them the benefit of the doubt, <laughs> arguably. Yeah, uh, but, but I agree. I agree. I think um, I think it's important to have conversations, and I think it's important to have conversations about difficult things. I'm. I also think it's important to understand why people are so worried about this. And one of the things that I've found useful, and I've spoken about this on the podcast before, is that for me the ideal of, of free speech is in an open forum um, where everybody is hearing all the different sides of the argument, whereas the reality particularly of the internet is that it appears to be an open forum but is not because we've built these algorithms that limit our exposure to ideas to a radical degree. So your your the conversation looks like it's free speech, but it's actually very selective and very exclusive, and you kind of only ever really see the worst of your opposition, the most sort of wildly hysterical, you know, bad examples and bad faith examples, and it can very much push people away from the idea of even a possibility of having an open forum. And you, you end up with situations like people refusing to appear on the same panel as someone who disagrees with them because that is endorsing the view that is a life or death reality for people. And I think that's not a particularly, like, 
that that kind of satisfaction in the moment of standing up for your principles means that you ignore this greater principle, which is what do you actually want to happen and how do you want to change the world? And if you want to change the world, you have to, it's hard. Like there's so much work in that. Well, there, yeah, I mean, I would, I, I am hesitant to, to start down the rabbit hole of all of the structural pressures online that result in uh, uh, distortions to conversation and to the information sphere because I've spent so much time doing that. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but, you know, there, there are many, there are many, for example, you know, ex- people with extreme views will be more motivated to spend their time propagating them than people who don't particularly care one way or another or have a mild view and aren't particularly engaged. And that's what you need. That's one of the many, many distortions that you get. There are many pressures that affect the information environment, well, online, or- as you say. But one of the, one of the things that I wanted to just go back a step to this, you know, just as you've been talking, I've been kind of stewing over the point of, you know, the idea that we have to treat that there's a continuum between harmful speech, which, which, you know, something, something said may affect someone's life far more than a punch in the face. Um, and it's all, you know, it's kind of like a cliche of like schoolboy, um, schoolboy, Bullying versus schoolgirl bullying. Yeah, or it's just like, you know, boys were kind of uh, as less so because schools are much less violent than they were, but boys were sort of sorted out, they'll have a bit of biffo and then it's sort of all resolved. I think that's rather an idealised version of the way that children are violent towards each other but because it can be traumatic, but sometimes it's not. Mm. Sometimes a bit of biff will resolve it. You know, it's complicated. But the point being, yes, sometimes something said might stay with someone for their whole life, whereas a punch in the face stings for a day and leaves you with a bruise for a week and then you kind of forget about it. But the difference is that the effects of any violent, any punch in the face might kill someone, actually kill them. Um, and so <laughs> you have to intervene. Whereas uh, something that a, a, a speech act that is aggressive mm. uh, might might be harmful or it might be the thing that changes someone's worldview or, you know, the, the, the consequences are so much less predictable or the worst possible consequence, the like it's likelihood and it's predi- predictability is far, far more kind of attenuated. And, 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 and so contextual we, as well, in because it's so, it's so diffuse, you yeah. know, in the context. And so coming up with a rule to say what you can, coming up with a rule to dictate what you can and can't say is far more likely to impinge on your freedom uh, than coming up with a rule about violence where things are fairly cut and dry. Either you're touching someone when they don't want to be touched or you're not. And, you know, whether, you know, a little bit of banter or a harsh word or even a sort of a stern tone or a dismissive tone or a scornful tone or something said um, uh, just... Uh, in a condescending way, it, it fits into the bill of, you know, of violence or somebody not paying attention to you. I mean, it's just, a, it, it's so difficult to draw the line there. And that's why, that's another practical reason why we don't and why policing it seems to me to involve an exertion of energy that is not justified by the amount of harm. Well, also as a kind of a side note, because this is interesting and I still don't have a hundred percent. I have, I have my gut feelings about it, 
but I don't have 100% kind of logical certainty across the board because there are, you know, there's ways that I feel where, you know, oh, that's awful or ways that I feel where, like, get over it. One of the things about speech that is very particular, about language that is very particularly different from physicality is that language moves so quickly Mm. and the meaning of language moves so quickly even between people on an individual level. I have friends with whom I would speak and they will use between ourselves like the worst possible slurs but in the context of our conversation with one another it is affectionate and the meaning that is intended is is a loving one. Um, But because the way the world works now is that no speech can be guaranteed to be private. In its context. In its context. Or, or and the te- context is so, one of the things about, especially audio, but even video, is the context is so difficult to convey. Yeah. And, and also the media that we tend to uh, engage with do heavily edit things. You know, you get, it's very, it tends to be very short snippets where it's very easy to, to um, bookend yeah. interactions in a way that just removes the context. Uh, so, yes, then you get this strange situation where, um, where where you get these kind of cascades of outrage that are unjustified or certainly not justified in their ferocity. You know, maybe mild indignation might be <laughs> a suitable response, but somehow that you get this storm that... Um, that um, builds up. Also, for ex- like, as a really broad example, or as kind of a very clumsy ex- example, I will regularly call your daughter fat. Yeah. Because I love her and I yeah. think she's adorable, and her fatness is, you know, I love a fat baby. Who doesn't yeah. love a fat baby? What a great thing. Uh, but there, I don't think there are many other people in the world who I would <laughs> dare to call fat uh, because you don't know. Because once you've grown up in this society, there's all these damaging messages about particularly women's bodies and you don't know how someone's going to take it. You don't know if they are a fat activist who is happy and comfortable with the word or somebody who's used it, had it used as a slur against them to the point but they haven't reclaimed it and it's deeply damaging. All of that stuff is so complicated and so shifting that uh, it's impossible to be careful about language. It's impossible to regulate language um, in a way that you can regulate physicality. Well, also, I mean, you two can, points. One, you on, can only on measure fat, it by impact. That's quite, quite a pertinent example because Lucy has, I, I say to her, oh, sometimes I, you know, like I chub her little cheeks or her arms or legs or tummy and I say fat, be- be- fat, beautiful fat little girl or something like that. Anyway, she's learned the word fat and we have a friend, we have some friends who have a little girl who's the same age, 16 months. And we were with them, and Lucy went up to her and squeezed her and yelled, "Fat!" <laughs> and they were quite hurt by this because one of them had had been picked on a bit at school when he was young, because he's he's a unit, and he he sort of had a he was a bit touchy about it. Not he, he was very sweet about it, but he sort of said he didn't like. Even at this point, he felt a bit. Um, there was some part of him that felt concerned or hurt by even a baby calling another baby fat so as you know as it, and that's my you know from a context of just as you say pure love ha, ha, the result has been that it sort of got out of the bag uh, yeah in exactly the inter- in the network of baby interactions <laughs> the internet, in the tiny network of like baby inter- communications network of baby interactions it's been decontextualized yeah, because our, of course our upbringing was uh, such that 
one of the vectors for beauty in a baby or appeal in a baby um, is their adorable fatness. Yes. The but, other, the other, I mean, the other point that I wanted to make was had to do with um, with language, as you say, and, and contextual the the context and so on and so forth. Is ultimately the the response to uh, cruel speech or harsh speech or hurtful speech, the extent to which a person is hurt by it is ultimately uh, more under their control than the extent to which a person is hurt by an act of violence. Yes. So if you're punched in the face, granted there are some things that you can do about it. Mm. In the moment, if you're lucky and you see it coming and you can sort of, you know, you can drop your chin or you can roll with a punch or you can, you know, put your shoulder up or you can catch it on your hand or you can um, whatever, step into it. There are things that you can do if you know what to do, but how much damage it does when it actually lands, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, out, it's, it's more or less out of your control. Well, Whereas if someone says something... That eggshell skull rule, isn't it? Yeah, and, where, yeah, and it's, out of, it's somewhat out of control of the person who... Who, who perpetrates the act of violence as well, which is why people don't understand violence. But um, the, the, whereas, whereas something that's hurtful, it's within the power of someone who's been hurt by something that's said to actually get over it. Yes, which is a contentious thing to <laughs> say. For most, people, for most people, some people can't. Some people are extremely sensitive or they, they suffer some kind of mental disadvantage that you know, or emotional disadvantage or neuroticism or whatever. Or context that, in yeah, which that, it's that impossible. really hurts them and, and so on and so forth. But in principle, there's probably something that could be done by almost everybody to overcome the hurt. Yes. Uh, and, and render it null as well. So which, you can, which you can sort of frame up with, a, with an example, an interesting, or not, I don't know, interesting, uh, an example that comes to mind is... Uh, it's how you frame up the person delivering the words. So obviously in the case of abuse or something, that's a situation where someone has direct power over you and so they can, and often this is the case where they'll dominate or frame up your world so that you can't escape from the abuse. But, for example, if you have, uh, if you see somebody who is mentally ill on the streets, clearly uh, down on their luck in a way that is, you know, a combination of terrible and things. And they're yelling at you that you're a filthy whore. Oh, this yeah. is a perfect example. There was a man in Melbourne who used to do this, who used to scream at you, but then he'd also scream at a pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> and, you could, like, in the moment it's a bit startling and sort of gives you that feeling of dread fear. or fear or whatever yeah. it is, but that is quite an easy thing to walk away from and yeah. dismiss. You know, it might make you feel a bit weird for 15 minutes and then you are like, well, you know, I don't even know if he thought I was a lamppost. Yeah. Well, John McWhorter, the, the linguist who writes for The Atlantic, um, he makes this point as well, is that he's, you know, he's very, he, he's, of course, he's extremely um, accomplished as a, as a speaker and thinker. And so he, he, he frames this in all the sort of, he gives the, all of the appropriate qualifications about his particular privilege and upbringing and so forth. But he sort of says he doesn't quite understand on some level. He's a, he's a black man and he doesn't, quite understand why people can't or maybe he doesn't put it this way but he says he describes his own experiences when people slight him either through a real um you know through through a very clear slide or through a, a microaggression or whatever he just sort of dismisses them as beneath his contempt that anyone who would anyone who would 
who would sink so low as to do that, to make a racial slight against him, automatically um, disqualifies themselves from being worth taking seriously. And he just, you know, and he has a sort of a robust enough ego and, and wishes that other people in his situation or people who or people of colour had that. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to put words into his mouth as to how much he would fault them for not having it, but I think he... Well, in a, it, it is an interesting thing in a context where you are in a, in where you are vulnerable in a physical sense, uh, then language can be very menacing, very upsetting as a prelude to violence or as a workup well, to different. violence. I mean, there are crimes. There are crimes of assault. Yes, you know, it is a crime to to put someone in in fear of violence if they form a reasonable fear of. It's also a cr- no, crime to commit har- harassment using a telecommunications advice, <laughs> a device, which I will often cite uh, on the internet when I see it happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. Particularly in, in Australia, certainly yeah. it's in the Crimes Act. Um, but this, I just had a moment of insight, and I don't know if it's relevant at all. But, you know, historically speaking, uh, language was a cause for violence. Like you, if somebody insulted your wife or insulted your honour, you would duel them to the death. That was a life or death matter. And we made a deliberate choice, we being Western civilization, and by Western civilization I mean some weird mashup of like Egyptian authoritarianism, Greek uh, democratic uh, primordials, uh, Roman militarism and Anglo colonialism. But we made a choice to move away and from sort of and and Nordic um, kind of collectivism. Yeah, Nordic like all of <laughs> that came Ger- together. That's sort of um, yeah, yeah. but all of that came together to a, a kind of an agreement to move away from violence as a response to speech. Well, like yes, that was a, right. a Defam- civil defamation law and libel was was had, yeah, despite all of its problems has been hugely successful in eradicating dueling. Dueling, yeah, yeah. there is. Uh, <laughs> I think there's one bridge on Cambridge in Cambridge where it's still technically legal to duel, uh, but other than that, it's not considered an appropriate response to speech acts, even what you would call violent speech acts. So it makes me uncomfortable when people begin to justify violence in response to speech, no matter how awful the speech may be, because there are legal remedies and there are social remedies and there are, uh, even when it's scary and awful, I think it is not the right response. And I think without, it doesn't... It depends how scary and awful. (laughs) It doesn't, yeah, well, obviously, yeah, there's self-defence, but it doesn't... um, yeah, self-defense may be an appropriate response to certain kinds of speech. You may actually, it may be justified to, to, to use violence if you feel like things that someone is saying are a prelude to violence against you. Yes, but then I think that, that comes back to the kind of the Nazi thing where people believe that Nazism as an ideology is necessarily a prelude to violence because yeah, historically it yeah. has been. But there's not enough proximity there. And also you have to put it in context. It, it, it's the fringe of the fringe. You know, it's it, it, and of course it can change. Things can change. And I was just listening to a fairly depressing podcast with Barry Weiss talking about the increase in anti-Semitism, especially in Western Europe. So um, so awful. So where, scary. Where the scale of it is still relatively small, but it's much bigger than you would like, and the rate of growth is much bigger than you'd like to see. But oh, but, the, co- point, but the point being that you know, for example, like. Uh, 
we're, we're rather far away from the point where white supremacists are going to take over America and enact a kind of purge against anyone who's not white or, you know, those, those people are actually on the margins and people who would defend, um, who would defend, uh, liberal and humanist values about race are in the just far beyond a majority doesn't, is, it is not convey how established that worldview is really. So maybe, I mean, yeah, I mean this, we could keep talking about this forever. Um, I want to do two things because we're going to continue this conversation on your podcast. Mm. And this is a two part podcast. The first half is tea with Alice. And then we're going to stop and continue the podcast on Henry's uh, forum, which is the man mum podcast. If you look up Henry Fraser, the man mum podcast on whatever your podcatcher is, you can listen to the second half of this conversation. Before we do that, I want you to tell uh, the Tea with Alice listener, what the Man Mum podcast is and why it is that you feel. Oh, so the Man Mum pod, pod, podcast. The Man Mum, the I Man mean, Mum. You, you cannot understand how many turns of phrase that I write for my last postscripts that are impossible to deliver. Like, yeah. I, for some reason, I find it really funny to write sentences that I then can just just tongue twister sentences. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, I guess Man Mum is a bit of a uh, tongue twister. The Man Mum podcast has uh, it has two strands to it. Uh, I initially started it just in order to enforce the discipline on myself of actually doing something creative and productive, which is a cliche for the uh, for the ground down parent, full time parent. But um, and, and I wanted to talk about my experience as a man doing full-time mothering as I see the job. Well, also, Mothering not being particularly a gendered term but just capturing the nurturing. The full-time nurturing process. Yes, um, because fathering is sort of rather loaded with ideas of authority. and. <laughs> so there's, there's, and <laughs> there's two things that I want to say in response. One is a super interesting one because I'm looking at our um, audio framing and I'm worrying that I'm talking louder than you. But then I realised I talked to Andrew X, who's been on the podcast before, a friend of mine uh, who wanted to be anonymous when he did this Tea with Alice podcast, Andrew X, and I, he said that the reason that Ceres and Alexas have a female voice is because women have more dynamic range. Right. So you, you're you more likely to hear them in a loud situation. Men's voices are sort of smaller in the because dynamic. Because higher frequencies. Because we have fi- yeah. just more dynamic range. We'll go from lower to higher. We have more range in our general speech, upsies yeah. and downsies. Uh, that men tend not to have, so that's mm. why. Anyway, well, surely when you when you when you do your sort of pre-programmed master on this, it will just compress us and then bring us a bit closer together. Yeah, obviously, but I have we'll I, I, like I, I have a very volume. kind uh, podcasting helper called Ben Wren who does a lot of my editing for me. Shout out to Ben Wren. Shout out to Ben Wren, who is just an absolute legend and will take the most nonsense loud you know, environmental bullshit and strip it out of my podcast so people can hear conversations that I have in tea shops. Um, Well done, Ben Wren. We will draw this conversation to a close and start the Man Mum podcast now. Um, And I I highly recommend it. I enjoy it very much. I enjoy particularly, and I don't know if this is an all right thing to say, you're in some ways more conservative than I am. Mm. And you have, you know, maybe stronger ideas about, gender norms because uh, I'm, I'm living in this like you know bohemian comedy world where everyone's you know a little bit more bendy and you're living in a world which is full of you know your lawyer friends and things like that 
I think lawyers and corporate people are the most sort of... Oh, yeah, but they're... they're, they're the most actively, uh, uh, you know, enforcing progressive norms, actually. But... It, my the, point the, I being that I think it's fun. I enjoy watching you wrestle with sort of masculinity and mothering and, you know, you're such a nurturing person but you also do Brazilian jiu-jitsu and have, like, a super masculine haircut and you love a fight. Um, the, not a real fight. <laughs> not a real fight. You love a, you love a play fight. Yeah. As, as your twin sister, the number of times where you were like, hey, let me tackle you into a wall. Yeah. Um, Sorry. No, don't apologise. I yeah. enjoyed it and it's made me very robust and oh, it means that I walk down the street in some confidence, not necessarily confidence of my ability to win a fight, but that kind of body confidence that we began this episode talking about where you know your limits and you know the edges of your body and you know how you will interact with other people on a physical plane that I think is very important for both men and women. Yes. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Well, before we finish, I should just say one more thing about the Man Mum podcast, which is uh, that it's not only, so it's not only about my experience and, and uh, the challenges of, of what I'm doing and what's interesting and fun and so on, but I'm also using it uh, to just try different other kinds of podcasts under the same un- umbrella when I find the time and energy. So what I've recently started doing is a subset of podcasts, which I'm calling The Good Stuff, um, which are designated by TGS in my um, podcast uh, feed. feed. And those ones are about um, people that I know for the most part. I'm, I hope that I'll gradually expand the circle and be, you know, but people that I know who are doing useful things. Um, and I'll talk a bit more in the episode on my own podcast about why I think it's really important that uh, we focus on those things and the ways in which our conversation tends to elide the good stuff and um, sort of uh, erase it as if as if as if the world were only made up of problems rather than a whole lot of incredibly complex institutions and structures and forces that are for the good and and keep entropy and destruction at bay so people can find you online at the man mum podcast and they can find the second half of this conversation in that feed so please continue to listen to us chatting if you like me talking to my twin brother about about things uh i highly recommend it so uh we'll get on with that conversation now you're having tea with alice thanks for doing it boyer thank you thanks for the cross pod
his mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the doffers at every frame. Lousy rifle, doll, lousy rifle day. On Monday morning, when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you, doffers, cry up your ends. Lousy rifle, doll, lousy rifle day. And when the boss, he looks round the door, tie your ends up, doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lousy rifles all, lousy rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lousy rifle, doll, lousy rifle, day.